Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Remember that everyone named in this podcast is to be presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law on the last episode of Guilt. Um, slimmish face. She didn't look like she was that comfortable in there. Anyway, they drove on by. Time rolled on. Um, just before dark, uh, the vehicle came back. It was the dark guy, Māori guy, no woman. In case you ain't worked it out, they were in the middle of doing the Swedes or had just done them when we passed through. The white car they were using was the Swedes rental. Certainly didn't mean you no drama, but I wasn't having that on my conscience. The pigs know they fucked up and were trying to tidy it up. And he would just search for years walking all the tracks, going off the tracks, it, it just, um, it can just consume them. I was the last one that probably ever saw them alive, and I, I've never told anybody. They've obviously been digging and I've just pulled a bone out. There's a piece of bone right here. From Brevity Studios, I'm Ryan Wolf, and this is Guilt. We've been on a journey this season of Guilt. A journey that I could never have dreamed of when I started this investigation. But it's time for this journey to end. Officially, at least. This will be the final official episode of Finding Heidi. And I can absolutely promise you that at the end, you're still going to have questions and want more answers. But unfortunately, many truths about this case have been lost due to the passage of time. I set out with only one purpose, and it remains to this day, and that wasn't to establish guilt 
of who's responsible simply to try and find Heidi. Because I believed there must have been clues that were missed that might point in the right direction. In this final feature-length episode, I believe we may have those clues. It's a wild ride, with twists and turns you won't believe. So hold on tight. Let's get into it. Before we continue with the investigation, let's quickly recap what we've learned. Firstly, local landowner Barry Lindsay says that he saw a mouldy man fitting Tamahedi's description driving down Parakawai Quarry Road in the White Subaru with Heidi in her barn. While Barry couldn't give me an exact date, I was able to confirm that it was within the right time period as the beginning of 1989. And Barry is sure, without a shadow of a doubt in his mind, that it was Heidi in her barn. I believe him. His sighting means that Heidi and her barn had to be alive together, up that road. The same road that leads to the forest where Urban's body was discovered. We've also heard from Murray Jenkins, who while waiting to pull out from a business driveway in his car in Thames, saw who he believed to be Heidi and her barn in their white Subaru station wagon. And in the back seat, a mouldy man who he felt looked out of place. Murray said it stood out to him because he thought the vehicle being all-wheel drive and with the bull bars would be good for hunting, which is something I've heard a number of people mention with their sightings, that it stood out because of the bull bars and Heidi. Based on Murray's normal driving route and the years he worked for that company, he believes it's in the right time frame. And if correct, then this sighting could provide the missing link of how Heidi and her barn may have met the Māori man when they picked him up hitchhiking. We've heard from Rodney Topaki, who believes he saw Heidi and a Māori man walk into the old Whangamata pub. He described the woman he saw as having puffy eyes, like she'd been crying. Rodney said he couldn't say 100% that it was David Tamahedi, but he was almost positive it was Heidi. He also said they left in a Subaru, although he may have told police the wrong colour initially. A few days after the sighting, Rodney says he saw what he believed to be the same vehicle parked next to a remote shack over near the Matolda block. A woman also came forward to me with a sighting of who she believes was Heidi and David Tamahiri standing in the dunes on the remote Apoderi beach around this time. She told me she recognised Heidi as the same girl she'd seen hitchhiking near Auckland at an earlier time, presumably before they purchased their car. She kept this sighting secret for 20 years, before eventually going to police, where she felt fobbed her off. She believes, without a doubt, it was Heidi and Tamahedi. But given the distance and the nature of the sighting, I believe it's difficult to be definitive. We briefly heard from Darren Lindsay, also known as the Parakawai Kid, who was living in the Parakawai Forest in 1989. He told me that he saw the white Subaru 
parked near where Urban's body was eventually found. But the keys were in the car, and it almost looked as if they'd gotten stuck. He said he felt like he was being watched, but that he didn't steal anything out of the car. After initially agreeing to meet me, Lindsay backed out, and he's not responded to any messages since. We've met Darren Old, and heard how he drove onto the Taikato farm in 1989, and saw Heidi and her barn in the presence of the three Turner brothers. He described Heidi as looking petrified, and Urban with his head bowed in the corner of the cabin. Not understanding at the time what was taking place, Darren was shocked to make the connection during a police interview when he discovered Urban's body while hunting with Jamie Corbin in 1991. According to Darren, he told police at the time what he had seen two years earlier, and claims they told him they weren't interested because they had their man. Darren also said he saw two white Subaru station wagons parked on the property and Donald Turner was removing the plates off one, which when considering other facts like the different paint on the vehicle and the photos from their trip and the discrepancy with the car keys, could suggest the cars were switched prior to it being found by police in Auckland. He also claims to have been there when Darren Lindsay stole the items out of the white Subaru station wagon in the forest. Finally, in the last episode, we heard from Donald Turner's former girlfriend Christine Hymona, who was placed at the batch on the Taikato property in the second weekend of April 1989 by both Donald Turner and herself. Christine described seeing a Māori man she today claims is David Tamahiri, also a blonde man, as well as Donald and Dave Turner. She then claims to have seen the same Māori man drive back down Parakawai Quarry Road in a green vehicle with a blonde woman she believes was Heidi. And when the car returned, Heidi was gone. Then in a startling revelation, Christine produced messages sent to her from Donald Turner's Facebook account in 2015, where he alleges his brothers and others on the property that weekend, including Tamahiri, were responsible for the murders of Heidi and Urban. He also says he spoke to CIB, and it appears he told them a story that is contrary to the one currently believed by the public and the one told by police. The passage of time has created a fog over that Parakawai Valley back in 1989. But while the exact details may be murky, I believe it's clear that the story police have told for the last 34 years is at the very least not the full picture. And that now, armed with this new information, we can put together the first meaningful search in 30 years. And one that has a real chance of finding Heidi and sending her home. I've uncovered a number of new witnesses in this case. But in my opinion, there are two that really stand out. Christine Hymona and Darren Old. Darren said he saw Heidi from only three or four metres away. He wasn't driving past in a car. He was there for a number of minutes. And he also saw Urban. He is without doubt the most important witness I've met. And in my opinion, given the historical significance and profile of the case against David Tamahiri, he could be one of the most important witnesses 
in New Zealand criminal history. Then we have Christine Hymona, whose story has changed over time, but claims that this is only because it wasn't recorded correctly by police. But she also places Heidi in the vicinity of that property during the same weekend. When I spoke to Darren, he expressed surprise at her story that implicated David Tamahiri. But he admitted that ultimately he only saw what he saw for that five-minute period. He doesn't know what may have happened before or after. But Darren wanted to meet Christine. And it turned out, Christine wanted to meet this other witness too. I had told each of them about the other's story, but had not told either of them who the other person was. So when we met at a private space in central Hamilton, they were both putting a face to the story for the first time. But it turns out, it wasn't the first time they'd met. Oh, hey Christine, how are you? Hey, good. Hey Christine. Hi. So this is Darren. Good to see you. Oh yeah. Well, thank you. Same as before, if there's anything that you guys don't want to say, like if you want a particular bit to not be broadcast or anything to say, I don't want to talk this bit to be on it or whatever. Can you recognize me, Christine? Which Darren are you? Darren Old. Darren Old? Mm-hmm. I sort of have a familiarity. Yeah. But I'm not certain how and where. Yeah, yeah. Um, I used to be Donald's mate. Right. Remember, t- I took you in that brown triumph, Mark Two, down to New Plymouth one time. You took us down there. Yeah. Hell's teeth. That would have been years, eighty seven. Uh, yeah. And we got chased. We got chased <laughs> by those bikies. Bikies. Yeah. And then we. I'm pleased you were driving then. Yeah. <laughs> and um, we pulled up into that rest area and that, and then we got out of there, and then we went down into one of your or Donald's friends' house, and it was all pink. The whole inside of the house was. Janine, Nats. I, I don't know, but Donald's yeah. climbing in the window. I'm like, oh, bro, <laughs> what's going on here? And he opened it up, and the whole inside of the house was fake, yeah. Yeah, Do you remember that now? I, don't, I remember the house, yeah, because yeah. my sister wanted me to go there right. and say hello, Janine, after like 20 years of not seeing her since I'd left. Oh, yeah. But I didn't, I don't recall Donald jumping in the in the window or anything. Yeah, um, yeah, to get into the house, you know, I was over again. Mm. Well, we didn't get taken down. No, no. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I was just saying that to Darren the other day. He was saying, telling me about, you know, it's like there's not many of us left from back then. I was like, fuck, you yeah. did well to get through all of, you know, the minefield. Yeah. yeah. Good. Like Donald come and, he, he come and see me when he got out of jail, you know, when he did that flag, he did about a seven spot. Seven um, years? Yeah, about seven years. I don't know where the prison is, I didn't know. Like, the last time I saw him was 89. Donald couldn't see me in, it was about um, 97, 97, 98, around then, he got out of jail. All right. He just don't know how it's on the bloody um, hospital, you know, for the drugs, he was talking about addiction, eh? Donald did. And then he came and see me and he, and he was going on about this, you know, about the situation that brings us here today. I didn't buy into it, eh, Chris? I didn't say anything to Donald like, about it. Uh-huh. So he knew that. I drove up to Don's, Don's place in 1989 to get some pot in there. When I got out of the car, there's the two white Subaru's station wagons there. 
Donald's got the number plates <laughs> off one of them. I was like, fuck, what are you doing, Spud? Guess I'm doing an insurance job for Gary Spinks. I was like, oh yeah. Didn't take much of it. Yeah. And I started to walk to the batch to the right hand side. And as I went to walk in there, Dave came out. He had that Heidi Parker in by the elbow. I looked right at her from like here to the wall. I just looked at her blonde chick and I was like, fuck, she looked scared, you know. I was that young fellow back then. I knew she was, she was scared, you know. But anyway, I went inside. And then James was sitting in there. So I got some pot off James. I looked over in the corner and there's that urban hoglin sitting on like a nail box, you know. The room was just a little bit bigger than this, another couple of metres bigger than this. And he's sitting down just looking at the ground, just sitting there in all this red hair, you know. And I didn't know. I didn't think anything of it too much. Got my pot fucked off, you know. This is up at Pat's? Yeah, it was at Pat's. And then, two years later, I found the body. You found the body? Yeah, yeah, I found Urban Hoglin. Right up the back. On the top range, right in the back. Behind where we used to stay, me and Dave. In the batch at the back, you know. The batch at, yeah. like, down by the creek? Yeah, yeah, that batch. I was down there. Yeah. I found the body just off the back of that property, right on the top of that range. So I was into my pick hunting and stuff, and bits and pieces, yeah. So I found um, Uber and two years later, then when I seen the photos, I was like, oh! When I was with a mate, and yeah, it's just like, fuck you, cunts. Yeah. Okay, because Donald stopped in at uh, Hamilton and I was there and he said, oh, I'm going to meet um, Yeah, he was going to meet someone over at the patch. He didn't say the batch at the time, he's got to go to Wonga. So I was thinking, yeah. oh, this is another drama. Yeah. So he says, like, are you coming? And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. So we got there and there were just um, two people coming across the creek and they asked Don, who are they? He said, one's Dave, not Dave Turner, and the other one he didn't know, but the other guy's been in a photograph at the courthouse or at least at the police station, white building in Thames, and Dave Tamahiri's being held by the police and the guy that was with him was in the crowd behind it in the shot. So I'd been asking, you know, who's this guy? Mm, mm. And then he... The same guy, the same Māori guy, came back in a little green wagon. It was like an escort or a Datsun or something like that. Real dark army green, really old thing. And he had a blonde woman with him. And she was like this, up against the wall of the car, in the passenger seat in the front. And it was just him, and he was like this with big eyes. And they went down Parakawai Valley Road. Um... I heard a motorcycle go up the hill and then it started to sort of turn into sunset and then as it was coming through the car came back again and no woman. At this point the dynamic in the conversation is interesting to watch. It doesn't come through in the audio so well but there is definitely an element of the pair weighing each other up and the story they're each telling. For Darren, I can see a look of interest mixed with confusion over Christine's experience at the batch that day. He knows what he saw, 
and seems to be struggling to see how it fits with what she's saying she saw at the batch. On the flip side, it's interesting to watch Christine's reaction to Darren when he tells her he saw Heidi in her barn with the brothers, and in particular that Dave Turner had Heidi by the elbow. This is a huge revelation, but she doesn't seem to show any interest in what he saw. All the questions seem to be going in one direction, but she never asks him a single question about what he saw that day. The meeting continues, and Christine speaks of the motorbike she said she heard drive up over the river, just after the green car drove past the batch. It's a curious development, so I jump up and draw a map on the whiteboard. Space. <laughs> I'll just draw on this here. So you've got, um, so here's, uh, here's the batch, and then yeah, that, they say Frequoia Road comes, and tell me if I'm doing it wrong, that's roughly the road here, pretty shit road. And then um, that forward, oh, there's the river here. Yeah, it's those hills. It goes across. Um, down here's, so you see the green car going that way. Yeah. You're somewhere here, wherever. Yeah. And then you say you see the motorbike up here somewhere. I heard it. I heard it. But these hills on this side, that's where he was heading to. Up here somewhere. Yeah. You reckon you heard a motorbike going up that direction sometime yeah. around the time of the green car? Minutes. Not, not long afterwards. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't see it, but I could hear it. And it didn't sound like it was a long way away. Yeah, okay. So maybe thinking of off-road bikes, maybe down to that second building. Yeah, okay. Maybe that distance. And then I size it up with the ranges. Yeah. And then I look at that fjord and how he would have gone through there. Because um, all the attention's on that next fjord, right? But I actually assumed the first time around that he would have gone to the end of the road because it was like a picnic area or a little walkway area mm, mm. and so I don't know where he stopped what he did yeah. but I just try to which which area how yeah. much time would it have taken as things tend to do when a witness tries to explain past what they know we end up speculating on what the bike might mean and the significance of the time the green car was gone before it returned Eventually, our conversation shifts to the appearance of Dave Turner and Dave Tamahiri, and the fact that they may look similar. Apparently, Tamahiri and Dave Turner look quite similar, you know? If, no. If you don't think so? No, it's Donald. It was Donald who looked like Dave Tamahiri. When Donald grew his hair long, and he had the big mo, you could put the two of them together, and you could quite easily look at Don from a distance and see if there was a similarity and it was all in the long hair and and the mo, which I thought was really peculiar because he liked having short hair. Why did he grow his hair? Why did he have to have that big freaking mo? But I never mentioned it. I just yeah, let him do what he wanted to do. Yeah, but Donald wasn't always that frail, you know, like he was only little, Donald was only small. And, yeah. Yeah. Um. Eventually, the three of us say our goodbyes and ultimately, while the meeting has been friendly and interesting to watch, it didn't bring anything new to light as I was hoping. One thing is certain, and that's the complete disdain Christine has towards David Tamahedi. There seems to be a real hatred there, and that, combined with her lack of interest in what Darren saw, does make me wonder about her objectivity. Darren and I grab a quick coffee 
before he makes the drive back to Fongamata. He says the meeting has been quite interesting, and a suggestion Christine made about the green car being burnt out intrigued him, as he did recall a burnt out car in the area around that time. But there was one thing he said to me as he left. He turned with a concerned look and said, Ryan, Donald was a punk rock, leather boot wearing skinhead. He looked absolutely nothing like David Tumahedi. It's not even close. If you'll recall in my interview with Darren Lindsay, he mentioned a woman and a sighting in Ohui. Lindsay told me that he believed if I wanted answers, I should speak to her, because he believes she was the last person to ever see Heidi alive. If you'll recall from our previous witness, this would be the second person to come forward and connect the Ohui Beach area. So I called Linda and arranged a time to meet. And the following day, I was walking down a long access way to their back section in one of the nicest house buses I've ever seen, where I was greeted by Linda and her husband, Robin. I probably could have driven. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't quite sure where I was going. I can party back here. Yeah. Yeah. Nice well, to meet you, Linda. Yeah, pleased to meet you yeah, too. Yeah, pleased to meet you. This is our back section that we had for our house. Oh, okay. And then when we sold the house, we thought, oh, we need a base. So we kept this. Yeah, it's lovely. Hey, Brian. Robin. Nice to meet you. Yeah, so we just park up here when we're not on the road or house-sitting. Was that your your house bus there? Yeah, that's it. Wow, that's a beast. That's what we live in. Wow, that's amazing. Well, it's a bit littler than the house. Than what, that that house? Yes, that was our house. Is that your house? That was, yes. We sold it. And it's been sold three times since we sold it. After a quick chat, we make our way into the bus, where we sit around a small dinner table, and Linda proceeds to tell me of their sighting. That's right. Are important. Well, I did an article for the Women's Weekly many years ago, and um, the lady came to visit me. But what I found with dealing with the police is <clears throat> they're not very honest at all. What happened was, we were down at Ohui fishing with some friends, Carol and John Barden, and coming out, it was late afternoon, and as we were coming out towards the forestry block, block that um, there's a road that goes off to your right, and there was a car coming towards us, and I said to Robin, what kind of car is that? And he said, oh, it's Subaru such and such. Um, station wagon. Yeah, with bull bars, white with bull bars. And as we went past, there was a guy that was driving and he sort of had his hair blowing in the breeze because he had the window down. And he reminded me very much of George Harrison. Mm. And something inside me said, remember, remember. And I took the first uh, numbers on the number plate was H something. The car. Oh, so did you actually say you noticed the license plate was H something? Or H other? something, yes. Oh, well, okay. Yep. And so you see him, you think that he looks that, like George yeah, Harrison. Yeah. And what else did you see in the car? There was one other person in the passenger side, and there was a whole lot of um, 
luggage in the back. Yeah. And did you make out any of the people in no, the car? No, no. Oh, so you couldn't tell? No, not at that time. That was just our first sighting of them. Right. And then on TV, a week or so later, there was a um, story and a picture of the car of two missing Swedes last seen on the Coromandel. I said to Robin, that's the car we saw coming out of Ohui. And he said, yes, it is. So the sister and I, we went out to Ohui and we had a brand new, what was it, Suzuki Vitara. Very distinctive. And we went down onto the beach, and as we drove towards the northern end, there was a couple walking up the beach. And as soon as he saw us coming, he grabbed the girl by the wrist and pulled her in towards him. And as we got closer, I said to my sister, that's Heidi, that's the girl that's missing. And my sister, she just freaked, and she said, no, 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 it's not. And I said, we've got to stop. And she said, no, 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 we can't stop. So we continued down, and when by the time we got back up to the car park, there was a um, white van in the car park, but there was no one around. So we came back, and I stopped... At Wangamata, there was a policeman on the side of the road talking to a guy who was mowing the lawns. And I stopped and I told him what we had seen. And he said, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So that was that. As time went by, there was more news reports. And time went by and time went by. And then they said that all people who had had any sightings had already been interviewed and they had their case set. And I thought, well, they haven't interviewed me. They haven't come back to me at all. So I went down to Thames, to the police station down there, which is the most unuser-friendly police station you can find. And... um. I said to the lady at the desk, I was meant to be interviewed by the police about the Swedes, the sightings that I'd seen. Oh, everyone's been interviewed. And I said, well, I haven't. And she said, oh, you know, what's your name and that? And she said, oh, yeah, I seem to remember someone saying about they saw the car and, yeah, their husband was a mechanic, so he knew it was the Subaru, you know, he identified it as, as that um, vehicle. Oh, oh well, um, no, well, we haven't got back to you. So that was that. And then about a week before the court case, I get a visit by these two detectives from Auckland, two IC in the case asking me all what I'd seen and they even took me out to Ohui in the sand dunes and just, I just clarify so where exactly is Ohui compared to Whangamata and 
Ohui is is just along the road from a potery, and a potery's just uh, north of Fungamata. How what is that like? Ten fifteen minutes? I know roughly, but yeah, yeah, ten fifteen minutes. Okay, yeah, it's just a nice sand beach. Yes, yeah, we went there every Pretty holidays because yeah. it was a um, relative of mine who owned the place. Um, so I took them out there, and oh, yeah, thank you very much. That was it. And then I get a call from Henry, who was the owner of Ohui, and he says, what have you been up to? And I said, what do you mean? He says, God, they've had search teams out here combing the sandhills and that all day. And I said, well, you're not going to find anything. I said, they were down in the fisherman's hut. That's where he kept her, which is along the rocks on the northern end of Ohui Beach. There's a fisherman's hut there. You could live there forever. No one would know you were there. And he said, oh, yeah, they've been combing the um, sand dunes. So they must have taken some heed of what I said. Yeah, yeah. so when you saw him out at the beach, the when you say you saw him pull Heidi in, mm-hmm. at that time you knew Heidi was missing. And, mm-hmm. missing. and there'd been pictures of her. The only problem, and I hate to do this, but... Mm. Tammy Harry was in prison and was never released from May 26th, and no one knew they were missing until after that time. So it's physically not possible that it could have been him. If it could have been someone that looked like him, but he was in prison from May 26th, and they didn't know the Swedes were... Can I have the... They didn't know they... What are you looking for? Glasses, Glasses. yeah. They didn't Thank know you. the Swedes were missing. Um, and it wasn't until... He was actually in prison when they first went and said to him, hey... We've discovered that you had their car. I was slightly off on my dates here. Tamahiti was picked up for bail jumping on May 24th, and it wouldn't become known that the Swedes were missing until May 26th, when a feature was run in the New Zealand Herald. But the fact remains the same. If Linda says she knew it was Heidi because she recognised her from the news, then it simply couldn't have been David Tamahiti. As he was in prison by the time the story came out and wasn't released for 21 years. And although it's not impossible, it seems unlikely that someone would have kept her alive for over six weeks, which was the period of time between their disappearance and the story hitting the news. However, Linda and Robin's sighting of the vehicle after Easter on Ohui Beach could well be relevant. The description of the driver looking like George Harrison could easily be a match for Urban. Could this sighting be the link? Did they stop here, on their way from Thames to Fongamata? Both Linda and Robin described the car as a white Subaru, with bull bars, and the license plate starting with H, would be a fit. When I challenge Linda over her sighting of Heidi and Tamahiri, she goes to a cupboard, and pulls out a large old book, and lays it open on the table. I see it's filled with page after page of neat handwriting. And she begins to read. Following behind, as we approach the forestry road that leads off to Pamanui, we could see a white car coming towards us further along the road. We pass this car, a white 4x4 Subaru, early model, at where the other forestry road leads off. They had slowed down as if not sure as to where they were going. 
The man driving it was European, dark brown hair. He reminded me a little of George Harrison, the Beetle. He had his window down and his hair was blowing in the breeze. There was one other person in the car. I did not see if this was a male or female. In the back of the car there seemed to be things piled up. The car had large black bull bars on the front. Something kept saying to me, remember. I tried to remember the number. All I could recall was H something. This would have been about 420. That was our first sighting of the Swedes. So when did you write all that stuff down? Um, shortly after it happened. Okay. 9th of April. That's the one that I'm really interested in, is that particular one. Um, hmm. so, so, so did you say you think that day was the 9th of April that you saw yeah. them there? Yeah. Okay, that would have been the Sunday. Um, yeah, that would be about right, yeah. Okay. Hmm. And yet you said there was only two people in the car, mm-hmm. and they were both in the front of the car. Mm. So more than likely it was the van was driving and well, you, Heidi was in the. Mm. You would not have um, you would not have seen them very clearly because that is just a dust bowl. Right. Now you can see it, see the car, see the number plates and that sort of thing. But as far as looking through a windscreen, the windscreen was covered in dust. Our windscreen was covered in dust as well. Oh, okay. Because we'd been out there yeah. having a filthy, dusty road. So when you saw the white car uh, with the two people in it, was it heading out to the beach? To Ohui. was heading into Ohui. Oh, yeah, as if they'd going out to sightsee or go to the beach or whatever. Well, you could camp there. Okay. And, and when I did that article, we were getting gas at the BP one day, and Bridget, uh, one of the um, attendants there came up and said to me, oh, I'm so glad that you went to, um, you know, Women's Weekly about your story. She said, because we were actually there at Ohui. She said, we saw you guys on the beach and we saw you leave. And as you left, a white Subaru came in. Oh, okay. And she said, and they camped there the night. And she said, and we, they were cooking sausages she said, because the smell of sausages were wafting through the campground. And I said, oh, really? And she said, yeah. And it turns out that they were in at the butcher shop in Wangamata. Oh, really? And they'd bought sausages from the butcher. I haven't read that in any of the police files or anything. No, you won't. Yeah, okay. You interesting. Won't. Well, I mean, if they had, that would, be, that would be interesting. That's right. They'd bought sausages there. I've tried but have been unable to verify that Heidi and Oban did buy sausages in camp at Ohui. But I mentally throw it in the that's interesting pile. Much like so many people in this case, Linda became somewhat obsessed after what she believes were her two sightings of Heidi and Oban. And much like Viv Leonard in season one of Guilt, Linda became a bit of a town pinboard. Everyone that had bits of information or possible sightings would contact Linda, and she would diligently note them in this diary. Some things relevant, and others a bit off the wall. But for an investigation like mine, a diary like this, written at the time, is literally like striking gold. More often than not, when I interview people, it's the little details that they hold 
that turn out to be far more important than what they thought. And as Robin begins to tell me about when they made the trip to Parakawai to visit the site of Urban's body, Linda continues to casually flick through the diary, and then she reads a passage that makes my jaw hit the floor. So we went and had a look, and I said, well, we know that area very well. So we went up and crossed the little stream and got up through the, well, basically, I think we might have parked the vehicle there, and went up in the forestry and wandered around and walked straight past the area mm. where they found his body. But it was such like dense and rubbishy yeah. stuff that you, know, you wouldn't have known. And the crazy thing is that suddenly this case falls, starts falling to pieces, the police's case, because they find his, they find his blicking, mm. his body there. And the, and the other crazy thing was that you know they, they had Tamahiri given his kid to, to watch and mm. all of that stuff, and the body was there with all of that stuff still attached to it. This is from one of our meet, meetings out at the um, Prakawai. Once out at the site where Swen's body was found, we stopped and had lunch. As before, Darren Lindsay and Jason Lindsay appeared out of the bush and joined us. Darren has continued to ask if I am still continuing my search for Heidi each time I see him. He asks, suggests I should be looking nearer the swamp area. I feel sure that he knows a lot more than he says. Since then, I have seen Darren and spoken to him. He tells me that he saw a white car going up the road. Then a short time later, a loud banging noise. He and his mate went to have a look, as they thought it was the cops looking for Patches marijuana, and they were worried they would find theirs. They followed the car up the forestry road, and when they came upon it, broke into it. They stole tapes, Heidi's, he says, and Swen's shaver. He said the car was creepy and there was a camera and photos spread out on the seat. Why take cheaper items and leave camera? Question mark. I believe they both saw a lot more than they are letting on. I can only hope his conscience will get the better of him and he will tell me at a later date. He says he no longer has the tapes or razor as they got scared and threw them away. The day after this, he says they went back up there and found the car parked near the second gate by the big oak and nobody was about. This is close to the swamp. And convinced Darren knows what happened, he keeps telling me if I really am set on finding Heidi that I should be looking in the swamp further down the track from where Swen was found. Holy shit, that's really, that stuff's really important. He keeps telling me if I'm really set on finding Heidi that I should be looking in the swamp further down the track from where Swen was found. He had a good look at this area on our last trip and in, in, out there, that was the anniversary of finding Swen's body and I'm convinced this could easily be it. The swamp has more depth and area than I first thought. It is not just a boggy wet area 
but can in fact be rowed through by boat. There is an old punt there on the shore of the swamp, possibly used in the past by duck shooters. A body could easily be disposed of in the middle and never found, unless by an extensive search by divers. I wonder if you're thinking about the same spot. Do you remember when you would go up, there used to be that big rock and it's on mm-hmm. the side with a mm-hmm. hole in it. It's mm-hmm. really weird. It looks mm-hmm. like a big wheel. And peop- it looks like people yeah. have gone round and yeah. round and round it. It's near there, isn't yes. it? Yes, yeah. Because now I went up there recently. Yeah. I've been up there quite a lot and I saw that spot, but it's no longer a pond. Now it's kind of like grassy marshland and you can't row or anything through it. It's not... It's mm. hard to explain. It's, yeah, it's like it's, it is more like a swamp now as opposed to an actual waterway. Um, well, fuck, but Darren never told me. How soon? When did you write this? Says, uh, this is, it was before July. Of what year? Uh, well, it's what are you saying? The, the anniversary of. of when? Well, so it must be about 91, 92, 93 or something. When Chris, this is our son, was in jail. He met a guy from Wonga, last name Neil. Don't know what he was inside for, but he says he was Darren's mate, the one who took the tapes in Shaver. He also says that contrary to what they say, the police did not do a thorough search of the area because if they had, they would have found their patch some metres away from Swen's body. I've got this. I'll, I'll let you go first. Yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, I came to interview someone today that that um, had a sighting in Ohui, and I was kind of tying that in. You know, they saw saw the car and stuff, blah blah blah. But you know, as with these things, it's the things that they think aren't important that end yeah. up being fucking massive. So, so these pe- these people are, were good friends with Barry Lindsay and Darren Lindsay in that. And anyway, after they saw the Ohui sighting, they got kind of, you know, connected with the case and, like, they kind of had a bit of an obsession with it. And so they went up to where, a couple times, to where Urban's body was found. And every time they went up there, Darren would appear because he lived up there, right? And Darren told them at the time, and she's got notes. She made notes in a fucking diary from back then of exactly what Darren told her. And she said, and she said that Darren told her they heard banging, like banging, and they were like, "What the fuck's going on?" So they came across and saw a car. the The car had was going up the road, up in the thing. And that time, they went to the car and said they stole uh, tapes and a shaver or something like that out of the car. And then the next day. They went back and the car was parked in a different spot. And they stole other stuff. And then she says that Darren says to her in the thing, he says, if you really still, if you're interested in finding Heidi, you should search the swamp or the pond that's down from where Urban's body was found. And they said, Darren specifically said to this lady, people think that the police searched these areas. They didn't. That she's in that fucking pond, mate. There's always the chance that a young Darren Lindsay may have been making up stories, which he then told Linda Millen. But the fact he stole items from the car 
is something that has been corroborated by a number of people. Remember, he was only about 15 or 16 at the time. He was a young man, and given the enormity of this case, was under a huge amount of pressure. Initially, Lindsay's sighting of the car up the forest road was big news, and Lindsay was on TV and in the paper, happy to speak about it. Then suddenly, it seems, he wasn't. I've been told by a reliable source that Lindsay was put under a lot of pressure by police over what he was saying, and that it was lies. Remember, if it was true, then it would seriously undermine the existing police case. But whatever the case, I immediately drove in the direction of Parakawai and the swamp. This is the first time today that that I've been up here on my own. You know, when you look at old aerial photos of this area, man, it's changed so much. It wasn't as rough back then as it is today. You know, and I guess the 40s, 50s, 60s, this area was all cleared out for farming. And then over time, it's just been let go. I can hear running water to my right through the trees, which must mean that I'm in the right spot because on the aerial map of this road, there was a the swamp or pond back in 1986 that was on the right. Pretty sure it's up ahead of me here somewhere. So the reason I'm here today is to look at this area and see what it's made of today, like what's the situation. Can we get in here and search? So, on the old aerial photos, the, the layout was somewhat different. So just to give you an idea again, I'm right in the middle of the bush. I've just walked off the forest track into um, pine forest, so it's not native. But now as I come across, there's a bit of native here because I'm walking over to a, a pond or a swamp or something. I can't quite see it yet, but I know it's here. And I think from the aerial photos, there used to be a road. Well, not a road, but, you know, I guess an access way for vehicles that came across here. It looks like a swamp or something. But the ground is firm. All around the sides of it are actually natives. And then beyond that is pine forest now the Parakawai kid that lived 
in this forest. As crazy as that sound, he literally lived in this forest. The one that stole, followed the car up, followed the car up and robbed the stuff out of it. It was him that said to Linda Mellon, you need to be looking in the swampy area below where Urban's body was found. I mean, that could mean anywhere down this whole big hill of Parakawai, but this place in particular stands out. I don't think she'd be put in far because I think back when this was in 1986 on that aerial photo, there was actually standing water. So it was more of a pond. Whereas today it's, it doesn't resemble a pond at all. <sighs> the question is, can we metal detect this area? I can't help but think, you know, it's, I believe that I'm probably standing within a hundred meters of Heidi's remains right now based on the ever the leads that that I have <sighs> you know so the plan is going to be I'm going to get the best metal detector people I can find that specialize in finding jewelry and my hope is by some miracle that we can sweep this area and maybe pick up a signal for gold I mean, how fitting would it be if the ring that Urban gave Heidi with his name on the inside gave the signal that found her body so she could be sent home. Coming away from the swamp, there are positives and negatives. Firstly, today the area is not as wet as it once was, and it's possible to actually walk out through the thick reeds and grass. This presents the opportunity to metal detect, and if Heidi was put there with her jewellery, like her engagement ring, then we might be able to accurately pinpoint her location. But the downside is now the swamp is much more solid. Her remains could be buried under a couple feet of mud, which might prevent the detectors getting close enough for a good signal. The reality is, I need to get some experts in here that know what they're doing in order to have any chance. As I work through my investigation, I build a long list of people I need to speak to and make sure I've crossed them all off by the end. And at the moment, there's one name that I still haven't managed to get to. And he's important. His name's Lyle Bowen, and he was the forestry worker in charge of looking after the pine forest 
where Urban's body was found. And it was Lyle, who police relied on at the time, to give them the piece of evidence they needed in order to discredit what Darren Lindsay had said about seeing the white Subaru near Urban's body. And Lyle was able to do this because of his own diary from the time, in which he'd recorded a large tree had fallen across the forest road, which according to Lyle, made vehicle access to the location of Urban's body impossible. Lyle is a tough, old-school type, who has worked in forestry since the 50s. And like so many others, Heidi not being found has been a difficult pill to swallow. Lyle pulls out an old forestry map of Parakawai, takes me back to 1989. It has. It's been a soft point as far as that goes <clears throat> and by geez I've looked hard but the place that where I think she may be two years missing before they found the bloke and the bloody rubbish that got away in there in a, in a bit of a swamp because I've been going up there good 75 years yeah, so Dad went hunting and he used to trottle us along because he used to leave me in the Wentworth with um, old Mr. Whitteson and his wife. They had the farm on that side and um, that used to be at the old store and that just over the Wentworth Crossing, yeah. the big, hell, big house there. Yeah. And because um, when I got involved with forestry, well... That was a different ball game altogether. So were you sort of um, keeping an eye on that forestry block out there? What was your sort of role there? Uh, silviculture establishment. Okay. Yeah, fire, you name it, yep. maintenance. I didn't do roading or harvesting. Yep. And. Um, oh, but it was your job to sort of basically more or less be the manager of that, keep an eye on everything. And well, sure. just a supervisor. Yeah. And. Um, because I was 22 years of pie till the Dutch shut it down. I was a manager in the workshops there, and I went out there for an interim job. And, of course, when I left school, I wanted to go forestry, and Dad wouldn't let me go. And um, that's how it all come around. Yeah. Because, see, the Prakawai, there's no houses up there whatsoever. Mm. And old Sonny Ross used to have the piece on the right going into the Prakawai. And... Um, he had a shack up where uh, Taikata is now, and uh, he traded that land back to the Maoris for a piece on the right-hand side of the road, which was all swamp. That's all been trained now in paddocks. And because um, in later years, people start buying sections up there, and it gets a little bit of a bloody nightmare at times. But the see, there was two entrances into that block. There's the entrance we know now. The concrete one. But the um, when the the river had no crossing, it was just a over the water and rocks and everything to getting in. And then we put a security gate up just up off the bank there. And um, we had a big storm come through the week before. And one of the foresters got me to go up and check the gate had been damaged. 
And I think there was a bit more effort than the bloody flood that done it, but the sort of shit we found is you're doing it all the time. Because my brother was with me. And um, then we had a good look because we didn't have no gear to do the repairs. And it was in April because the bird season was on. And my brother... Um, no, no, that's an. Uh, that's work tomorrow. Another bloody block, to bloody do. That's a thinning PC block. And anyway, um, we only got so far up the track because it wasn't a metal road or anything, and the forestry had pushed a track further through. But it was never metalled or maintained, and of course the trees then would have been maybe well 77 that block was planted so it was what 88 or something when they mis- disappeared yeah, it was 89 I've got a mm. I've got a, um, a really good high quality aerial photo from 86 and you can see it was much more open back then the trees weren't mm. you know you could see right through to the grass around them mm. obviously now it's just completely yeah. covered and um, there's a big tree and I mean a big tree it come down off the bank wind throw and there's no way you get underneath it and the cattle are walking around under the bank side of it which is the higher side of it because just down the road there used to be a gate in here cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And because his brother got out to unlock it, and uh, he said, shit, he said, some bass is dead here. You can smell it. And um, there's that many bloody stocks still running around in there. We just put it down for that and left it at that. Because two years later when they find... Find the um, what do you call them? And um, it was lucky I'd written what we were up there for at the time, all that in my work diary, and because it give a definite date and all this and that. Because at that time, no one knew anything was going on. And do you, um, do you still have that diary? Eh? Do you still have that diary? Oh, I've still got it somewhere because the police I'd took love, photocopies love, and all that of it. And I'd love to be able to just to see that. Oh, I'd be lucky to find us that much junk in there. He could go back that many years, but I'll, somewhere the diary's here, I know. Oh, and so in that diary, you've got the actual date you went up there, you saw the gate was smashed down. and We went to inspect the gate and found damage. And So that was the same time when you saw the gate that you smelt that smell? Same day? Yes, that was in... I'm sure it was early April or mid-April, but yeah. it was only about a week after um, we found out later on that yeah. 
Um, that's when they disappeared, but it wasn't. Yeah. Nothing clicked till they found him. So on here, where's that? Where would, would did you smell that smell sort of around here somewhere? You see, the Prakawai River goes up through yeah. here, yeah. and the Waipuraponga comes down down here. But there's the entrance there. Oh, yeah, I see. Yep. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that'll be the, that's where you turn and go down. That's your river crossing. Yep. And of course, now you go up there to the first corner. There used to be a big tree there, eh? Uh, there, there used to be a big tree right there. Oh, that was all um, eucalyptus. It's only just been taken out, and because you see the dates when they're planted. Oh, so those, is that what those numbers are there? Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. And this is this is be a ninety-two map or something because it's put out by Rainier. And um, that tree was across the road, about there. Right. Okay. And the um, they turned around and come back down, and about there where the fence line come down where the gate was and that's where that other entrance comes in yeah got you and um, oh, so when you was changing the, did you say it was your brother pardon? was it your brother that was with you and he smelt yeah but you smelt it too oh yeah got out and had a quick look around and it was right beside that little creek that comes down there <clears throat> and um because with this dead stock that was around it, but I should have recognised the smell a bit better than I did because I have smelt dead before. Dead body? Or, Pardon? Have you smelt a dead body? Or oh, a, yeah, shit, yeah. Oh, you have? Yeah, I found about six people in the forest already. Mm. Jesus, so you know, because apparently it has a bit of a sweet smell to it. Oh, something. I can't quite remember now, but depending on how long they've been there, you get one that's come on off the bloody beach and you... Christ, even seagulls bugger off. Um, but you hear different stories. I try to get what any other information out of the cops that they may have. Something that might have clicked. And they reckon he was thrown off this little bluff, which is a dusty little bluff. And then he was dragged down to where they found him. That could wear fruit. There's no get away from it. But where did she go? Because from here, there's a fence line comes right down to there. And it, it was open, well, you've seen by that photos. And I'm thinking that she was a uh, fairly strong will type of girl. And for her to bloody head it out, if they'd come in there and she'd come out on the road there, she'd be quite a little bit hmm. bourgeoisled where the hell she was. So just what is the story? Lyle is a straight-up, calls-a-spade-a-spade, no-bullshit kind of character. The type that once he gets an idea in his head, it's tough to convince him otherwise. He's certainly not one for wild theories. But I explain to him the situation with the new witnesses and their sightings, and then Linda Millen's diary, and instead of rubbishing it, I could tell he was interested and he recalled an interesting discovery he made on the forestry block back in 95. Brothers from this property. Where the Rotana is, yep. we planted that out in about 95. Yep. Oh, yeah, it says 95 right there. It does. 
and that was all scrub and shit. Mm. And of course, the, fen- the fence line went up there. Yeah. And when they went and bloody cleaned it all up, we went up the plant as normal, and I had to do a fence repair there. That's where I found them bags of bloody clothing. And um, oh, you, you found bags of clothing. Aye. Uh, you found bags of clothing. I found quite a bit of gear. And um, I took the detective out from my Jokomaki, and <clears throat> we had a good scratch round. He got a good two bags of bloody clothing, and um, but they couldn't tie them up. All the tags has been taken off them, and some of them have been slashed, and. Um, that's where that got left. Fucking hell, okay. And do you remember, like, did you have a look at the... They were what kind of bags, like plastic bags, like... One was a pack, and the other was... Um, I'm not sure they are black or... No, they might have been clear plastic bags. Fucking hell. Because when, when we knew about it, it was one of the this camp there. Was an obvious point if they went up the camp. Yeah, yeah, to tip the tent up. Eh? Clear plastic bags, with clothes inside, with the labels cut out, some slashed, and a pack. Sound familiar? What was found down the bank over in Thames at the end of Tararu Creek Road? Clothing, inside bags. One of these, a clear bag, with a pair of woman's briefs that had been slashed to form a G-string type shape. And according to Darren Old, Lindsay and his friend took items from the car, including a pack that was never found. Now I'm not saying these items Lyle found are definitely related to the case. But where they were found, and what they were, is interesting to say the least. Lyle says the police came and retrieved the items and he never heard a word of it again. But the location he found them is worth noting. Down the bank, next to a private forestry campsite. A place Lyle believes could have been a spot they chose to camp. Lyle is a wealth of knowledge on this area of bush and we cover every possible angle of vehicle access. As far as the fallen tree is concerned, he believes that when he saw it in late May, it had been there for three months, and a vehicle couldn't have accessed the upper forest road where Urban was found. I have total respect for Lyle's knowledge, but personally feel that it's a tricky determination to say it's definitive. Had the tree fallen just after, then it would have still been there for almost two months by the time he saw it. So either Darren Lindsay is for some reason lying about seeing the car, or the tree wasn't there at the time. Both are possible, so let's move on. I've had a great chat with Lyle. He has a deep interest in history, and in particular military history. And no joke, he has an old armoured personnel carrier in his shed, among other things. But as I'm wrapping up our interview, we make a startling revelation that in Linda's diary, the location Lindsay said he saw the car parked the second day, and the place Lyle said he smelt the smell, 
they're the same place. And Sven Shaver, Ivan Shaver, he said the car was creepy and there was camera and photos spread out on the seat. I believe they saw a lot more than they are leading on to. I can only mm. hope his conscience will get the better of him and he will tell me at a later date. Mm. He says he no longer has the tapes or razor. They got scared and threw them away the day after threw them away. The day after this, he says they went back up there and found the car parked near the second gate by the big oak. Nobody about. Well there's no second gate near the that tree. That gate was way down the road. Mm. Either way. Okay, so he says yes, yeah, he says that gate where it is now is in the original position. Yeah, oh, but I mean, where would the second gate be? Well, that's only that few, wooden gate. There were some Taranaki gates or something where there. No, just a wooden farm gate. So going up that road, so there were no gates up here. Only that gate that we stopped. Uh, no, so, sorry, that's the only there. gate there, and and, and that one it was there. a farm gate. Yeah. And the farm gate, well, you just get out and unlock it and walk through. Fuck, Lyle, you think about that for a second then. If there's only two gates, if that's the first gate, mm. that must be the second gate. He says, by the swamp. You should be looking by the swamp. Yeah, well, that gate is down near the swamp. By the swamp. And that's where you smelt that smell, and that's where he said he saw the car parked. Maybe the oak tree, she's got confused there. You can go up, if you go up there, that fork there now, you'll see a big stump there. But it's a point because they cut it down when they open that skid up, and um, maybe he just got confused. Maybe yeah, it could have been a loose tanica, um, but <coughs> just one of those things. The tree is of no. Yeah, it doesn't. She's probably just. Let's say there was a big tree. Yeah, he said he saw the car parked there the day after. Um, I mean, shit. That's. I didn't realise that. I had thought that there were other gates up here. No, no. Oh, so that's that makes sense then. Yeah. The bad smell by the second gate near the swamp. Surely, if there was a place we should begin any search, this would be it. Immediately, I set about organising permission from Rainier, the company that runs the forestry block, and they kindly agreed. But sadly, during this process... I discovered something that made my heart sink. So, yeah, unfortunately, it's crazy because, yeah, that block of block of eucalyptus where we're looking had not been milled since the 70s or something like that, and um, even older. And it would explain why, if Heidi's body was there, it's never been found. But sadly, in the last year or sometime thereabouts it has been milled and sounds like it was mechanically milled which would mean big machinery in there and uh, which is not what we want to hear but hey I'm gonna we're gonna chat to these guys anyway and just see if there's you know if they saw anything or just their general thoughts on how they milled these areas and so on so calling uh, Adam Hello. Hey, is this Adam? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it is relatively flat in there. Yeah. But um, yeah. So so how long ago did you guys mill that? Uh, that was earlier on this year. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah. Bugger. Yeah. Oh, were we in there? Might have been. Did we knock that bit over even towards the end of last year? Yeah. 
Okay. I can't remember exactly. It was in the last 12 months anyway. Okay, and yeah. so, so you could tell from yeah. being in there that that hadn't been milled in a long time. Nah, 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 those trees were fairly mature, that's for sure. Mm. Yeah. That's, yeah, because yeah. so, it's always been sort of thought, I mean, we have a real reason why we'd be look, look to look in that spot, but it actually yeah. kind of made sense when we, I talked to Lyle Bowen, who was the old forestry guy from back in the days in there, and he showed, yeah, yeah. showed, showed me some old forestry maps, and he said, oh, yeah, that, that wouldn't have been milled, so if she was in there, she may not have been found. Yeah, um, yeah, true that. Yeah, so when you were on the ground, so you were the foreman, um, was it mainly yep. mechanically milled in there? or? Yeah, it was all, well, virtually all mechanically cut, yeah. So that's big machines. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't notice anything because I was doing it. Yeah, okay. But, um, yeah, it would be quite hard. It would have been a lot easier before we'd logged it, obviously, to yeah. potentially find anything for sure, but you never know you're lucky. Despite the concern over the milling of this area, I set about putting together an official private search team made up of former police, Landsar search and rescue, metal detectors, friends, and with a turnaround of only two weeks, we all sat down in the Fonga Bar Cave for our breakfast and debrief. Um, yeah, so glad to see everyone here. Um, yeah, no, thanks everyone for coming from wherever you've come from. Um, like I said, sort of, we're not searching where we are by accident. So, you know, also as well, like we've got to keep expectations realistic as well. I mean, we're talking 34 years. Um, we can't go out there thinking, getting upset if we don't find something. But I guess what we're doing is um, going through these areas and making sure we know, okay, that's not the area. And then we move on and we just tick off these spots because we're almost 100% sure that, that she's out in this sort of greater area so um, but yeah this particular spot is really really key and um, yeah so a bunch of things have combined into this spot and we'll sort of work through uh, the kind of main area looks like probably about 250 metres squared ish but I guess when we get out there we'll figure out Alan knows the area pretty well but um, once if we get through that today I guess well there's heaps of other spots we can move to to have a look uh, and if we get time for those that might be interested we can walk up and see where Ivan's body was found there's a memorial there as well if anyone wants to do that so we arrive on site and I hand each person a branded gilt finding Heidi search team polo everyone looks sharp and official and that's the way I want it to be Every one of us knows that we're here for a reason. And despite some friendly banter amongst the group, there's a serious undertone. We meet Lyle Bowen at the main gate, and our convoy of vehicles crash through the Otahu River Ford and up into the Parakawai Forest. Our first target today is the location Lyle smelt something dead back in May of 1989 the same place we believe Darren Lindsay saw the white Subaru parked with no one around. Leading our search team is current New Zealand land search and rescue member Daryl Howard and Marty Marsden, recently retired from the New Zealand police and has experience in forensic scene examination. We pull out a large aerial photo of Parakawai, as it was in 1986, and throw it on the bonnet of Lyle's ute. And he goes about explaining to Marty and Daryl where we need to be looking. Just up here, is it where, where you've got that smell? And you smelt that? No, back up there. Was just it, up here. Oh, just, sorry, just here? Yeah. yeah. 
It's all used to come down the ridge there. Oh, right, yeah. And, so, and the gate went across, and that's just more or less an internal gate. Yep. It wasn't any security gate or any other thing like that because there would have been Taranaki gates on this road going up originally. Do you, do you think we can go and, can you show me go and like stand where you were standing? Can we go and stand where you were standing when you smelt that? When we Lyle leads us up to the location, and it's beautiful. But clearly, the search is going to be incredibly difficult. A stream runs through thick native bush in a gully five or six metres deep. Lyle tells us that storms over the last 30 years have seen it drop and level by at least two metres, meaning the chances anything is remaining from 1989 is slim. But slim chance or none. Our team is committed to searching every square centimetre of the search area for anything, any clue that might remain. Forming a close contact line, we work our way through the zone on hands and knees, literally lifting every stick and every stone. And after a few hours, I'm called to a spot next to the stream, where I find Marty and Daryl excited with the discovery of bone. Um, so they've just brought me down to, I'm just talking for the podcast, um, just brought me down to the to this sort of quite a key area and um, it looks like they've found a skull here and it's it's very old. It's kind of got a green, green sort of mossiness to it and it's, we're not lifting it up at the moment but it looks like you could crush it between your fingers if you wanted to. Oh, so that, that other skull that you've got, that's a complete sheep's, oh, so this is a separate, this is much, much older too. Like, I don't think I've ever seen a skull that looks like this. Bloody hell. We bag the bone, but the eventual discovery of a sheep skull nearby means it's likely connected to this. But its obvious age has us buoyed by the realisation that yes, bones can in fact survive in these wet areas for a long time. Many hours later, we have a number of interesting finds, including the sole of a very old woman's shoe, which is interesting, because given how incredibly clean this bush is, even finding a bottle cap is a rare event. But as with all items we find, we bag, record their location, and continue. So so, just, someone's just found an old... This has been done, oh sorry, this has been done quite well, so just dump me around the corner, there's another one. Oh, okay. Just found an old woman's, um, a, the sole of a woman's shoe. It's, it's definitely old, you can see the little nails in it, and it's definitely a woman's one, it's leather. And note, could it be the base of a pair of leather thongs or slip-ons or... Um, but, you know, a good find. I mean, I've got to say, it's really difficult when you're in here and the things that are in here when you're looking on the ground i mean they're all the same color as the ground now they don't stand out in their original color which can make it really really difficult to see um like the skull that was found before the skull bones i mean i probably would have gone right over them myself 
Right, I'm going to move on a bit more here. Showing his dedication to this cause 34 years later, instead of leaving after showing us the location, Lyle waited on site with us the entire day. And even though ultimately we didn't find what we were hoping in the area of the smell, I could tell he was happy that finally after all these years, someone was really searching in the place he thought they should. Wrapping up the first location of the bad smell, we loaded up into the vehicles and convoyed up through the forest to our second primary location, the swamp below Urban's body that Darren Lindsay had said to Linda Millen is the spot to look if you want to find Heidi. I have to wonder, did he see more that day? Is it possible he was witness to a brutal act that he's had to carry all these years? This swampy area is vastly different to the areas we've been searching. It's open and flat. The only obstacle being long grass and reeds, which we flatten by forming a line so our metal detectors, Marty and Paul, can work their magic. And when they do, they make the most exciting find of the entire weekend. A gun. Um, yeah, so at the moment we're at the swampy area below where Urban's body was found, uh, which I visited earlier. Um, Marty and Paul are sweeping with the metal detectors, and so we've formed a line and gone ahead and sort of trampled all of the, the long grass in front, because it used to be water, but it's, it's more of a marshy kind of area now. Oh, we got something. Oh, it's another piece of that. What is that? It's a bit weird, isn't it? Yeah, you pulled this dug up a... Almost like a pistol, isn't it? It's like from a gun. Is that a trigger? It is a trigger from a gun, eh? Oh, wait, who's... Look at that, that's a trigger off a shotgun, eh? Uh, is it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Fuck, yeah, well, I wonder if that's that, a gun, mate. Yeah, that's off of a. That's a gun, alright. That's a gun. That's kind of. I mean, I guess this was used for duck shooting, but you wouldn't normally just leave a gun here. <laughs> that's a bit. Evidence, mate. Well, we probably should bag that, yeah. Oh, that must be another part of it. Let's dig the rest of it up. Yeah. That'll be the block. That's. that's Jesus. At one point many years ago, this swamp was a pond, and a spot used by duck shooters, and we find a number of old shotgun cartridges, but to find the rusted remains of a gun buried in the edge of the bank, that is a surprise. It's definitely old, really old, but is it the age we are looking for? I'm not sure. But finding it here, only a few hundred metres below where Urban's body was found, it does get the blood pumping. Later, Lyle, who is a keen military buff, lights up when I show him the remains, which is really just an extremely rusted trigger housing. This is old, mate, he says, as he carefully rolls it over in his hands. 
he places it as possible late 1800s. A far cry from our 1989 time frame, but seriously interesting nonetheless. The following day, we attack Parakawai again. This time with the kind permission of landowner Rick Taikato. We have leave to search across the stream from the old batch. And when we're working through the thick bush, we make an eerie discovery. An old homemade hut. Long abandoned to the elements, with rubbish and old furnishings strewn through the bush. It's so hidden in the jungle, you'd miss it if you didn't know it was there. And I quickly realise exactly what this place is. It's Darren Lindsay's old hut. The one he built by hand, using anything he could find. It has no running water or power, but features a home-built pot-belly fire. We find newspapers from the early 90s. It's been empty a long time. If Darren Lindsay did steal items out of the car, which it seems almost certain he did, then surely, at some point, he would have brought them here. So we fan out in search of anything that could be hidier of barns. And soon enough, we make an interesting find. Yeah, so Ray's located a, a woman's belt, which, you know, it's pretty old. Like, we sort of take a guess that it's probably around the period we're looking at, but um, just sort of thrown to the side of the this hut out into the bush, so... You know, obviously we'll check that belt and these look really out of place mm. they look like they a, look European or something they yeah. do and that fork yeah like the fork was over here found but, it all here mm. so but it's almost like, like you know some they look they don't look like a New Zealand no, thing that's eh? what I was thinking it's Medical like they thing. well are they just like cut are they just yeah. cut their place like for a, yeah. for a cup to go on top are they not well, that's Are they coasters? Oh, that's what okay. I'm picking. Yeah, but they don't look like a New Zealand design, no, do they? that's right, they don't. Ah, oh, coasters. I haven't seen... But you imagine like a bag of... and cotton buds. So like a bag of... Okay, well, let's... let's you know what I mean? Yeah. Good work, Paul. And you just found that because of that. I mean, that yeah, is that definitely period. Here. That's got to be like 80s, 90s, for yeah. sure. Yeah, no markings on it, but... Ah, uh, we've got okay. Yeah, let's. Just unusual, you know. That's like that's. Not kiwi. Now that's actually extremely unusual. <clears throat> good, good work. Okay, yeah, let's let's sweep this area a little bit. But the discovery of Darren Lindsay's old cabin is interesting, and in that it's in the close proximity to the location of the old batch on the Taikato farm, and the front gate to the Parakawai forest block, and also to the private campground where Lyle found the bags of clothes. The bush is far more overgrown today than it was in 1989. It certainly seems that if something was happening in this area, Lindsay would have known about it. Uh, so we're searching. We're in the last last hour or so of where we're going to be searching uh, for this first weekend. And, um, you know, we had some interesting finds today, you know, whether they're related to the case or not. We don't know, but definitely some things to check out. Uh, right now we're searching up above, a bit higher up above a barn's body. and um, Yeah. She's, you know, thick bush like everywhere else. And 
Yeah, I've sort of just come to the there and I'm just working my way back down now. Yeah, I think to sweep back down, yeah. Um, yeah, I think coming out here, you know, this weekend, it gives you an idea of the sort of enormity of, of a task like this when, you know, you've got an idea of where you need to be searching, but it really is incredibly tough and any remains today are going to look completely different to what they did. You know, clothing will be gone by now and uh, bones will not be white. They'll be very difficult to see. It, you know, you know, it does become a bit, a bit of a, a miracle situation, but the reality is this, that if we don't try, no one will. No one else is going to do this. And, you know, this is just the first weekend of probably what will be many. You know, these guys that I'm here with today, they're all very passionate about this. And they're already talking about organising upcoming searches, different areas, how things might be done. And, yeah, um... Yeah, I mean, oh, like, I'll move on from this case in terms of I will have to go on to other cases, but it's never going to be closed for me until we find Heidi. It's been a hell of a, a hell of a journey this season, and when I started it, I never could have expected that it would become what it has and that we'd uncover, you know, that I'll un uncover what I have with the help of, you know, these witnesses and other people that have, that have helped along the way, and... Yeah. You know, thanks for coming along on that journey with me. It's not over. Like I keep saying, you know, one door opens, there's a whole new set of doorways. Right, should we swing back down? I reckon. We decided to do one final sweep of Lyle's bad smell area on our way out. Before we leave... I manage to pull myself up through the bush and into a clearing where I get a final moment to reflect. I've just come out of the top of the bush and just by myself, everyone else is sort of down, finishing up the last bit of a search of this area near where Lyle smelt the smell and sort of just standing on the bit of a knoll and looking out over the bush, actually a big bit that's been milled and it's just silent. Wind is in the trees and it is a, a beautiful place up here. Yeah, I just, I have this feeling, even though this is the end of the, technically the end of the podcast, that this is far from the end of this story. You know, like I say with the other cases, I mean, it's, you know, I feel like in a way, like I sort of become a little bit a part of the story now and I've sort of got, I feel like I have a responsibility that 
I'm the only one out here trying to trying to get to the truth of this and find her. You know, if I give up, that'll be the end of it. I've built a team of people and, you know, hundreds of thousands of listeners that are so heavily invested. I can't give up now. Promise that this won't be the end. Right. Gonna head back down and I think we'll probably wrap it up and everyone's pretty tired and we'll regroup and make a plan of attack for next time. Like I said, this is only the beginning. What we can say is that we can tick off this area, that we've searched this area and as good as it can be searched. And we'll just start looking in the next best place, but I think we all feel that that swamp below Urban's body is, a, is an area that we should be looking. Right. Back into the bush. Our convoy makes one last trip out the gate and down through the ford of the Otahu River. Everyone tired after two difficult days searching in thick bush, but still feeling motivated. I can already hear talk of further searches and new plans of attack. Oh well, cheers guys. Yeah. Yeah, I mean at the end of the day, like we've ticked off that area, that, that first one, and had some interesting finds today though. Yeah, that, um, that sleeping roll is pretty interesting. I mean, yeah. As in any case, I believe that those who are being implicated need the opportunity to tell their side of the story. I've previously made an attempt to contact David Tamahedi through his brother John, who replied to me politely and said that 34 years after David's arrest, the case has had a devastating effect not just on the victim's family but also their own and said he supports his brother in his appeal. He said he would contact David to release his number to me but I'm yet to hear back. Finally, I decided to attempt one last person. The man Darren Old says he saw holding Heidi Parkinen by the elbow on the Taikato property in April of 1989. Dave Turner. Hey, yeah, have you got a moment to have a chat at, right now? Yeah. 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 Um, so I'll just say I'm a journalist and I've been working on a story and I'll just let you know that I am recording this call. So, you know, anything that, that you say, you know, might be used for the story. So just, you know, don't say anything yeah. that you don't want for the story. Um, yeah. So so just to confirm, you're, you're David Turner, Donald Turner's brother. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've been working on on the case of Heidi Parkinen and Urban Hoglin uh, uh, yeah. from 1989. And yeah. um, 
I sort of started working on this case because um, I sort of thought the whole thing with the Tamahedi and everything, it probably, it looked like the cops had fucked something up and I was just trying to figure out where the loose ends might be. And so then basically I've gone through this whole investigation for a few months and there's a few people that have started putting your name plus James's name, Donald, on that Taikato property when Heidi and Urban were out there. Yeah. And um, I'm just trying to figure out what's happened. So obviously Heidi and Urban ended out, out on that property at some point. But then I don't, know, yeah. I don't know what happened after that. So what I'm trying to figure out is, you know, what happened. Um, I'm being told that Tamahedi was there too. Um, yeah. And yeah, so I'm, I'm hoping you might be able to help me out with it. Well, there's a conversation we should have face to face then. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd like yeah, to. Kanui to Kanui, brother. I mean, hey, I, I'd love to, mate. Um, but you know, I've been told you've got a bit of a reputation, and I'm, you know. Uh, you know, it's not something I can really do in person at this point. You know, well, we, we, then I then I can't talk to you. You can't talk to me. Not if it's not to Kanui, to Kanui. You know, what if we did a video? Like, it's it's what one if, of those. It's one of those realism things. What if we, we're going to be real? You're going to shake my hand, look me in the eye, and I'll give you what you need. And I can give you what you need. I, mean, I can finish your story for you. Now, you drop my little brother's name and my big brother's name into this conversation. We yeah. need to have this conversation face-to-face. Yeah. Otherwise, I can't, otherwise I can't help you. And you'll miss out. Yeah, I mean, I... Your, your story will be incomplete. So I'll t- tell you that right now. Yeah. Well, so, you know? Donald is actually the one... I mean, I know he passed away recently. Donald passed away, yeah. Um, and he can fucking rot in hell, that little shit. Little junkie motherfucker. Even though he's my little brother, he's still getting rotten hell. Yeah. He, he, he said some things before he died. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He said some shit, too, to get himself so he didn't have to do jail when he robbed a dispensary. And he dropped my name in it. I know all about my little brother. Yeah. Little junkie motherfucker. You know? I come back from overseas and, oh, hell, look out, Brother Spud's written a statement. Well, Brother Spud knows nothing. Out of all of us, I know it all. Yeah. Right down to the nitty-gritty details. But it's like, I go out to Matolda Bay and I look Tommy Eddie and his brothers in the face and you fuckers, you know he did it. They don't question me. They think I did it. Okay, if I did it, then don't fuck with me. But I didn't. Like I say, yeah. I know shit that nobody wants to come out in the, out in the open. Hey, Tamahiri did it. I could sit down with you and lay it out for you. And you could take it back to them and say, did this happen? Yeah. Because um, do you remember um, Christine Hymona? She was she was um, Donald's girlfriend back in the days? Yep. Yep, and he destroyed her. Turned her into a fucking needle user. Yeah. Christine yeah. was a fucking lovely girl. Because she, she told uh, me she was out at the batch and she saw, she she thinks she saw David Tamahedi driving down that Prakawai Quarry Road. She would have. She would have. Like I say, we, we're having this conversation half on, half off. If you come and see me sit down face to face, you can record the conversation. I don't mind. But I need to look you in the eye and figure out what you're doing. No? Yeah. But I can give it to you all. Yeah, fuck. I mean, the, only place, the only thing I can't give to you is her location 
because she went north with him. And I know that for a fact. The whole Crosby's clear. That's all bullshit, eh? That crap. Yeah, yeah. 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 Like when I come back from overseas, I had the homicide squad from Jack. Tim sit down with me and put those photos in front of me. And I looked at him and said, what? Oh, your little brother said, yeah, my little brother can say a lot of fucking things. If you idiots believe him, yeah. and you, it's entirely up to you. Yeah. You I, know, so I, I, don't know, I don't know who you've been talking to, but yeah. you're bringing up some names out of the past, that's for sure. Yeah, it was just some people that, um, you know, I, I don't want to throw their names into it just at this point. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> they threw mine and my brother's names, didn't they? Yeah. I, I, like, I fear, I fear nobody. Yeah. I have no issues with anybody. Anybody got an issue with me? Well, come and get some. Yeah. You know, but I, I am an honourable man. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to trust you. I do. I really do. Uh, no, it's entirely up to you. I don't. You know, it doesn't worry. No skin off my nose. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so when I've but while well, I've been doing this, I've found some new witnesses that have placed Tammy Harry driving the car with the Swedes. In you it. you could place whatever you like. I know it all. I override everybody that everybody said. There's a couple of things that no one said that happened that you know it's, it's quite strange. But okay, I can so, say I can finish your story for you. Where are you based I can take these days? You, I, can, I can take you right up to when they left the Brackaway. Okay. You know, my nephews have found Urban carrying a roll of fucking chicken mesh to go and build a cage to grow dope. Yeah. Um, they you, call me Bear, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah. But, you know, and I mean, it's part of that, you know, like I've self-preservation too I mean yeah you do have a past and I suppose I'm, and I want to trust you and I know that you've probably changed and stuff but um, well, I haven't changed oh, you haven't changed I have not I have not changed but you are no danger to me so you have no fear there's, there's no drama for, when it comes to you I don't mind journalism So we I could, don't mind journalists okay so we could meet maybe you know, in, but, a, in a cafe or something like that yeah oh yeah make it public yep. but like I say I need to look you in the eye so you know I'm telling you the truth and I can verify everything I've got to say, but I can finish your story up to them leaving the Brackaway. And when I say them, I him and her, David Tamihiri and yep. the female. I can take you right up to there, and I can tell you how I know that. Yeah. But I'd rather be looking you in the eye for it. Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate that. I, I, and there's I, no, there's no drama on me. You know, the police have got nothing on me. Whatever my little brother said, got nothing on me. Otherwise, I'd be locked the fuck up. And that doesn't scare me. Yeah. You know? But they got nothing. Oh, you think about it and let me know. Hey, you got my phone number. Okay. Are you available sort of like most of the time kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Whenever you're ready. Okay, mate. All right. Um, let, 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 let it's, a, it's, it's a part of my life that needs to be closed, so I'm over it. Okay. But yeah, now I'll talk to you if you want to. Okay. You figure it out and let me know, eh? Okay. All right. Awesome beer. Sure. Okay. Thanks, mate. After this call, I agreed to meet with David in person. Clearly, he has information that is key to this case. He agrees that I can bring someone with me, and a friend puts me in touch with a security expert known as the Russian. Pull this up. So I conducted a, a PLIRA, or Person of Interest, uh, risk assessment, 
uh, which is basically a risk profile and assessment of the individual. That helps me identify any measure and assessment for the person or, or organisation that I'm looking at. Um, that gives me accurate and current advice to plan accordingly. Um, really gives me some ability and flexibility to plan against probable uh, threats or in this case a worst case scenario. So those considerations for me with this fellow here was is he a violent person known to be volatile, does he have a history of or known to carry or use weapons or firearms, were there any home order or mental health issues and his relevant medical history including alcohol and drug use. They gave me a picture of who he was, a general profile of who he was, and what minimum measures I had to put in place. Based on the intel gathered, I assess him to be medium to high threat risk level. With a day and a time planned, at 7am on the morning of our interview, I received a text from Dave Turner, asking who I worked for and why I was researching this case. I told him I was an independent journalist and I felt the police had done a poor job as Heidi had never been found. He told me they did a pretty good job because they got the right man. He went on to say that he didn't trust me, that I wasn't working for someone, that I had to be getting paid, and his final words were that he didn't believe me. And as I wrote my reply, the text window disappeared. He'd blocked me. So we never did get that meeting. It's quite possible that Turner may think I'm surreptitiously working for Tamahiti's case, trying to find evidence to help in his appeal. Or perhaps there's something else I don't know. But whatever the case may be, it seems clear that Turner knows the rest of the story. Or at least a version of it. But unless he has a change of heart on what my motivations are, It seems like he's not going to tell me. But in our brief conversation, I feel confident that, while it's murky, and it's likely no one will ever know the truth, the real truth will be found on that farm and in that valley in the second weekend of April 1989, and not in Thames or Crosby's Clearing. And while I admit that I don't have all the answers, far from it, I believe I can safely say that whether guilty or innocent, at the very least, David Tamahedi was convicted on the wrong evidence. But I will add this final note, that both Murray Jenkins and Barry Lindsay gave me 100% positive identification in their minds that it was David Tamahedi they saw and no one else. I specifically asked Barry if it could have been David Turner and he said no, it was Tamahedi. It's my personal belief that the New Zealand police had knowledge that there was more to this case in the early to mid-90s. The discovery of Urban's body in the wrong location. Darren Old's attempts to reveal the truth, along with Donald Turner's statement in the mid-90s, and Christine Hymona, surely had left police with no doubt. But it seems clear they were faced with a decision. Search for the truth, 
and admit that Tamahiri was not given a fair trial. But have the opportunity to really search for Heidi, where you know she'll likely be found. Or alternatively, bury it. To keep him in prison, but at the expense of being able to find Heidi's remains. Let me be clear, I'm not saying this is a fact, this is just my opinion. But on that note, let me leave you with this. It was a couple of years after um, we found Iban I was at a party in Teronga. Uh, I was living there. And um, it was just pretty random. I bumped into one of our neighbours. So I grew up there. And um, she asked me, she said, oh, you, you found the found Urban. And we started talking about it. And then a few other people were sort of listening in and and that and um, you know people asked a few questions and what I thought and anyway um, a few days later I was, I was at, at work um, my mother had a, a plant nursery and got a call from a cop and he, and he said he wanted to come and talk to me about, about the case and, and I thought it was a follow-up of some sort and anyway he turned up at our work and went out and talked to him and um, he basically was there to to tell me not to not to talk about the case and you know I'd sort of said that I was surprised that there wasn't a retrial because when we found um, Urban he he was in a different place to what to, to the circumstantial evidence that had been put forward and he also had the watch on which was a big part of the case against the man that was convicted for it and um yeah i just thought it was a bit unusual that this cop he said i can't remember his name but um as i remember it he said he was cib from auckland i can't remember his name but but he basically come down here to tell me to, um, yeah, not to talk about the case and not to. And he said, oh, I remember him saying, oh, maybe not his exact words, but oh, the guy we got a bad bastard, and if he didn't do it, he deserves to be in prison anyway, which which may be true, but um, that means that the, if, if he didn't do it, there's some other bad bastard that was running around that did do it, so I would have thought it was more about finding out the truth of what happened, not just getting somebody for the sake of it. In this episode, we made the startling discovery of Darren's story he told Linda Millen, and likely unknown to him, or anyone, she wrote it down. Consider this. If Darren did indeed see the white Subaru smashing into the gate, and he did follow it up and steal the tapes which were Heidi's, and the gate was as destroyed as both Lyle and Darren Old remember, then why does the vehicle recovered not have a single scratch on the front? No broken lights, no scratched paint. It's a case that made little sense. 
but captured the imagination of two countries and has consumed so many lives in an endless quest for answers as to who, why, and where. But if there's one thing that has stood above all else in my time investigating this tragic event, it's that every person I've met has just one motivating drive. And that's the same as my own. It's not to establish guilt, but simply to find Heidi. To send her home. To her family. Where she belongs. And I believe we can now say, with almost absolute certainty, that right now, we're closer to achieving this than anyone has ever been in the 34 years of this case. What began as one person turned into two and has now grown into an army of thousands. And while this might be the final episode, I can promise you one thing. It's not the end. Today is April 20th, 1989. It is the day Urban and I were supposed to leave for the Cook Islands, but sadly, we will not be able to make it. We have loved every minute of our trip in New Zealand, with all the natural beauty and friendly people, although we never did see a Kiwi. One day, I do wish to return home, to my family and my Sweden, but I do wonder when this will happen. I read a quote in a book today. The only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. I think there are good people out there who can help me, and I will wait for that day that they do. But until then, here I'll stay and listen to the quiet rustling of the leaves in the trees under this beautiful sky. Until the day I can be reunited with my family and my urban. Do not forget, and please do not give up. Heidi I'd like to say a special thanks to a number of people. Firstly to Darren Old, whose courage to speak up about the truth when all others doubted him, has been the driver of this story. Without him, any chance of finding Heidi would have been impossible. To Alan Ford, who approached me many months ago with a hunch that something wasn't quite right with this case. Quite simply, if it wasn't for Alan, I would have likely never taken on this case, and the truth would have never been known. Also, All the other witnesses who have willingly come forward to help this case, Christine Hymona, Barry Lindsay, Murray Jenkins, Rodney Topocki, Linda Millen, and everyone else I've spoken to. To the branding shed.co.nz and Fongabara CAF for the great deals on our search team uniforms and filling our stomachs. To all those involved in this initial search for Heidi. While I did cover all the primary expenses, they each contributed their own gas and their precious time and experience to make such a well-planned and executed search possible. I thank you. 
Their names are Alan Ford, Joe Ford, Daryl Howard, Marty Marsden, Paul Faulkner, Jason Donald, Gavin Lee, Jacob Masters, Ray Masters, and Ashley Dromgall. And a special thanks to Lyle Bowen. I'd like to also add a massive thank you to my fiance Ashley for having to put up with someone whose brain has been 90% somewhere else at all times during this six-month investigation. As I'm recording this, it's 4am in the morning. I'm at the end of a 20-hour non-stop marathon to get this finished, so I hope I'm still making sense and I don't sound too tired. But finally, I'd like to thank you, the listeners, for your overwhelming support. This season has outstripped all others, and I believe you've recognized the work that's gone into it, and I appreciate that. Your support through listening to ads or as paying subscribers cannot be overstated. It seems crazy that I can live this life doing this for a living, so thank you. And, well, I guess that's it for season three. I suppose this is the point where I drop the mic, say I'll see you all very soon in Australia. Guilt is a Brevity Studios production, written, produced and narrated by me, Ryan Wolfe. All opinions expressed in this podcast are exactly that, opinions, and are not a statement of fact by the podcast itself. All persons named are presumed innocent unless proven otherwise in a court of law. Voice acting in this episode, Anna Waddell as Heidi. You'll find further photos and video on my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ, and I highly recommend you join the discussion with thousands of other Guilt listeners on Facebook at the Guilt Podcast Discussion Group. Guilt is a 100% independent production. We've never received a single dollar in taxpayer funding. You can support us to continue to make great content, plus get ad-free listening, bonus episodes, and early release by becoming a Brevity Plus subscriber on Apple or Acast Plus. You'll find the details in the show notes of every episode. If you really enjoyed this season, feel free to make a donation if you wish. You'll find the donation link in the description of this episode. Thanks again. This podcast was written and edited without the use of AI. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.